this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. Welcome back to Base Layer. This is David, and this is your new episode with Mike Alfred from Digital Assets Data. What Mike and his team are doing there is so incredibly important for the world of crypto. Providing the ability to look at all the different data and data sets that are available right now and make them your own. I've talked a lot about the necessary requirements of tooling and research within the crypto asset space, really making it more available to traditional asset managers to really understand how these assets are moving. Uh, create different models, and really make it something that is very unique and special. And so Mike and his team have been talked about in terms of marrying Bloomberg to GitHub, where you have a repository of different code and data sets. And with Bloomberg, you have the ability to create different models and different graphs and different ways to view the data. And so it's really an important milestone with their creation. And so we talked about that. We talked about Mike's background. He's a very successful entrepreneur um, and an investor as well, too. So this is a great show. And also, I love the fact that Mike runs 100-mile marathon runs. And not many times you find a founder who has that, that, that kind of dedication. And so this is a great show. Mike is well-known within the ecosystem. But outside of it, you should definitely know what they're doing there. And to remember, nothing on Baselayer is investment advice. So please do your own research. And on the flip side, you're going to hear the conversation with Mike. Enjoy. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. I have Mike Alfred, the co-founder and CEO of Digital Assets Data Inc. with us. Mike, how are you? Great. How are you doing this morning? Doing good. Doing good. This is a crazy time in digital assets right now. Uh, the word Bitcoin was used several times in Congress over the last few days. The President of the United States tweeted out about Bitcoin to 61 million followers, and it is just a wild time to be alive in this space. So it's good to catch up with you. Um, for those that don't know, Mike has a really, really great career. He was the co-founder and CEO of Brightscope, uh, which was acquired by Strategic Insight uh, a few years ago. At that point in time, Mike has been uh, traversing the areas around digital assets and crypto. Um, and recently, um, a few um, about a year or so ago, founded uh, Digital Assets Data. We're going to talk about what that is. It plays an important role right now in the need for good research and data within crypto assets and digital assets, which has been something that to this point in the last, say, last year and a half or so has been fairly non-existent. So, Mike, if you could give us a little background about yourself and about the firm, and then we're going to go into uh, some more learning about what you guys are doing there. Sure. Yeah. So my real passion in life is actually, believe it or not, investing. Uh, not operating. I told all my investors at Digital Assets Data that this is the last time they get to invest in me as a software uh, CEO. Um, I've been. I started investing in my my kind of late teenage years uh, as a freshman at Stanford uh, in the late '90s. Got to see the dot com boom and bust. Um, developed uh, kind of a more of a long term value oriented strategy, which is how I invest the vast majority of my money. So believe it or not, even though I'm long Bitcoin, I also love my Prudential, CVS, Heineken, Diageo, GM, Target, Starbucks, Procter & Gamble shares, for example. Allow a traditional asset guy. Nice. Traditional. And I wait long periods of time. So I watched 
Starbucks for something like four years before I purchased it. I waited a very long time. I wanted more exposure to healthcare. I recently bought CVS, Walgreens, and Medtronic, but after like five years of, of watching the companies, um, as, as I was telling Pomp the other day when we were on a drive up in, here in Colorado, um, I think one of the hardest things with long-term investing is patience, right? Because you make a lot of the money on the entry. Um, and so you don't want to be buying Procter & Gamble here at, at 25 times earnings, right? Or Pepsi at 25 or 30 times earnings. But if you can buy them in the mid-teens, when for whatever reason the market's temporarily negative on them, you should do that. So I kind of have a very interesting approach because I kind of use a barbell where on one end I have these long-term value-oriented dividend payer stocks. And on the other end, I own you know, a basket of gene therapy companies. So I've been very heavy investor in many of the biotech uh, companies that have been acquired in the last few years, including Kite, Juno, Avexis, Spark, more recently this year, Loxo, and Array. Um, and I send out a regular newsletter to a bunch of public company CEOs and, and hedge funds in the biotech space, um, because it's just a space that I, I think is one of the most important in the world. And so the way I describe my investing is long-term value investing, but without a fear of the new. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm interested in, you know, I've made some investments in CBD and marijuana. I've made some investments, obviously, in the crypto um, space. And so a lot of my initial interest in Bitcoin just came from seeing something that reminded me of the development of the Internet in the mid to late 90s as I was beginning my investing journey. And then on the, on the entrepreneurship side, my last business, Brightscope, um, was a data business selling information to the largest asset managers in the world, right? So our largest customers were firms like BlackRock, PIMCO, T. Rowe, Fidelity, Vanguard, Schwab, J.P. Morgan, Goldman, et cetera. And we were serving up data to them that helped them effectively, you know, more effectively run their business in the retirement plan channel in the U.S. It took us about eight and a half years to build that up. Um, we built a pretty cool consortium data model, a give to get where these asset managers were sharing private sales data into a central consortium that we manage, and we would mm -hmm. clean up the data, aggregate it, anonymize it, and then feedback the analytics um, to those customers. And we sold that business in 2016. It was a good outcome. We'd only raised $5 million, uh, and we got the business up over $10 million in, in recurring revenue when we sold it. Um, and so what really happened here was I was already investing a little bit in Bitcoin, and I had been evangelizing starting in like 2016, 2017 timeframe to like my father-in-law who was very anti-Bitcoin originally, but now has a large position that he's built up over the last couple of years as I've convinced him that it's a great hedge against a lot of the shenanigans that are happening globally in terms of monetary policy. Um, and, you know, selling Brightscope all of a sudden for the first time in my life, not only was I able to move to Colorado, first time I could imagine living somewhere outside of California. But I also could imagine doing a data business or software business in a slightly different vertical than traditional asset markets. Um, and so those things kind of came together, you know, in 20, late 2017, when my brother Ryan uh, Alfred, who uh, was my co-founder at Brightscope, joined Johnny Steindorf and Tucker Waterman at Distributed Global. Mm -hmm. They're running a $100 million token fund now that invests across the spectrum from, you know, first money into to kind of seed stage protocol teams to all the way up to a liquid book that includes Bitcoin and Ethereum, of course. Um, and they were raising money from LPs in the fall of 17, and they, they just kind of realized that they weren't the only uh, sort of emerging asset manager in the crypto asset class that didn't have access to enterprise quality data, software, et cetera. Essentially, the same type of tooling you'd expect to see in traditional equity markets, traditional bond markets, it just was non-existent in the space. And so they actually called me and said, hey, Mike, 
we believe that there's a huge market here. What do you think about joining us? It, it just so happened that I was getting sick of working for private equity uh, at that time. And so it, was, it wasn't it was super easy, but it, but it took a couple months of discussion. We put together the way the deal would work. I raised the first few million and we we're kind of off to the races in early 2018. So Mike and I have also had some nice interchanges on Twitter recently. Um, and we were talking to someone and this person was giving some kind of negative feedback on, on Bitcoin, which is I, I thoroughly enjoy. And I think this, I think there is a place for this kind of discourse. I think we need to be respectful of everyone's opinions and we need to listen more than we try to talk. And so, but what was interesting is that Mike and I were talking effectively that Bitcoin does not have a CEO, does not have a board of directors, can't really treat it the same way as an equity. And so I'm curious though, because of what you've just shared is that you have made investments and you do actively invest in public equities where there is a valuation model and there are things like DCFs. What do you think, because you are immersed in, in the world of data now in terms of digital assets, what do you think about the maturation of valuation right now for Bitcoin and other crypto assets? Well, I think obviously there's a lot of people doing work on, on this, and I would, I would not say that we are going to be the leader in terms of providing the intellectual frameworks in every context, right? We, we, we strive to provide the best, most comprehensive data sets to allow the leading thinkers in the space to do their work. Um, that said, um, I view I view Bitcoin sort of like the telephone, and I had this conversation with Mark Yasko recently when we were up in up in Vail for an event, and I walked him through my thinking, which is that it's hard to understand paradigm because when the telephone was created, there was no native monetization, there was no telephone token, but effectively, if there's only two telephones in the world, um, and you know you have a hundred or two hundred close friends, the the telephone has limited utility, right? Because there's ninety eight or one hundred ninety eight other people in your network that you want to communicate with that you'll still need to communicate using some other other form, right? And so if you could have monetized with a telephone token at the beginning, then the value of the telephone goes up as the network grows, as the number of people that own a te telephone go up, right, as the utility increases. If I view Bitcoin as being very similarly, and a lot of my personal bullish thesis on Bitcoin is around the network and the brand and, and it's sort of ubiquity globally, mm -hmm. where if I hop on a plane and head to Switzerland or head to Japan or Hong Kong or Singapore or somewhere in Central Africa, there'll probably be somebody uh, in that region I can contact and transact with, right. Right? which allows me to do something that you've really never been able to do at scale in human history. Um, there have been a lot of other forms of currency that, you know, they're, they're good store of, stores of value, but they're hard to transport. They're insecure. Mm -hmm. You can't really use them right? You can't really use them in, in every region in the world. They don't have sort of universal ubiquitous value. I think Bitcoin is the first asset in human history that could simultaneously be owned by everyone. Um, in the same way that anybody who has a telephone, if I have your number, I can contact you, whether I'm on a mountaintop in Maine and you're in South Africa. Um, Bitcoin is the first kind of monetary mechanism to, to have that type of interaction. So a lot of my personal view about the valuation and, and whether or not, you know, it makes sense to own a Bitcoin at 10,000 or, or around the kind of network value in so much as, you know, you, you view the network value as one of the key drivers of, of utility in the long run. Right. Well, you just 
interesting. I just looked at my charts and Bitcoin just crossed 10,000 when it was uh, around 9,300 this morning. So way to go, Mike. I, 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 can, I completely credit Mike Alfred right now with the current bull market that has happened over the last hour. Um, and so it just so happened, you know, that he, he's got that magic hand, that magic sauce. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about digital asset data. So um, kind of the mission statement, air quote, is a fintech and data company building enterprise-grade software and data feeds for crypto funds and other market participants to provide asset managers with high-quality information and more sophisticated tools to track and manage investments, conduct due diligence, and make trading decisions. So in my question here, what does enterprise-grade software look like today in crypto as opposed to maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago. What does that, what does that evolution look like going from Excel spreadsheets, Google Sheets, to systems that are more traditional in finance, i.e. the Bloomberg Terminal, the Thomson Reuters system, FactSet, CapIQ, et cetera? Yeah, I would argue that it's obviously an evolution and we're certainly not anywhere near where we need to be yet as an industry. But, um, you know, inter- enterprise quality means, you know, platforms that are always up data that's always validated it's always right uh trusted right so it's funny because a lot of what creates value in, in the crypto ecosystem is the trustless mechanisms for doing business but yet with enterprise quality like a lot of the value is that you trust the organization that you're doing business with and so i don't think that exists today i think it's an aspiration it's something that aspire to be in the future the, the reason why it doesn't exist though frankly is is nothing to be ashamed of it's simply a nascent space right and so there's so much new data that has not been well tested well understood well analyzed there's certainly some wonderful analysis that people post on medium twitter but those analysis are are one off and in some cases those analysts are spending months just bringing data together right so they're doing data plumbing work trying to pull down data from all these places and then they spend some time writing up a great analysis right of of a number of different things that might be happening in the market but it's not something that's repeatable it's not scalable. It's not sustainable. It requires a lot of one-off, one-off work. And so, you know, one of the things that people don't really realize is that with all these new blockchains, there's probably thirty or forty functional blockchains, right, globally with with significant economic uh, activity. And those those chains are spitting off terabytes of data, right? And that data, while there are some firms out there like Chainalysis that are doing a good job on the kind of forensic side, there, there are very few folks that are using that data to drive, you know, the investment decisions, the front office decisions for an asset manager. Um, and so data is new. It's not well understood. There's a lot of it. Um, it's frankly a huge challenge, right, for anyone, um, let alone somebody brand new with only 15, 20, 25 people to do all of this stuff in a sort of enterprise quality way. I think a lot of this, it just requires more time. Mm-hmm. Investment. We, we've raised, so that hasn't been announced yet, but we actually just raised uh, a little over 3 million of additional uh, funds last week on Tuesday. So we've now raised $9.2 million or so in the last 18 months from start to here. Um, So we view ourselves as probably the best funded of kind of the investment oriented data businesses in the space. They're obviously better funded KYC, AML, crime fighting uh, firms in the space, right? That have kind of broken out. Um, but you know, a lot of this is just more time, more investment, more learning. Um, uh, but we believe, you know, the industry will move beyond using coin market cap to close the books, right? So 
for most of the last few years, if you're an institutional manager in the space, you use coin market cap data right, right at the end of the, the end of the month to report to your investors. And I think mm-hmm. a lot more people are questioning whether that really makes sense. Not just because coin market cap has had a somewhat spotty record in terms of providing, you know, high quality uh, data and the methodology obviously has been questioned um, um, several times, but also because every firm is different, right? And so if you only trade on Binance, right, um, then it doesn't make sense to be using a price figure for venues that you don't trade with. Right. And so custom feeds, custom analytics, things that are really uh, helpful to clients. I think enterprise quality encompasses all of those things. But as I said, I don't think we're there yet. I don't think we're there yet. Um, but we aspire to be, you know, one of the leaders in the space. So digging into that, so there's a lot of data out there. You mentioned coin market cap, but then there's also APIs from different exchanges, and we've seen some forensics on some of the uh, exchanges out there. Obviously, there's been about a hundred, give or take, it may probably a little bit more, um, and we've seen some forensics on those exchanges where the data is not necessarily the quality that we would expect from an institutional quality provider, and so. The the lack of price discovery um, or discovery in price that, to be quite honest with you, you have some susceptibility to. You don't necessarily you can't necessarily trust it. So, what part of you know price discovery or the lack thereof of price discovery in crypto assets in Bitcoin and you know has kind of hampered adoption from institutional investors in your opinion? Yeah. So, so I'm not sure that. I get the work that Bidwise has done. We've studied that. Uh, in, in our view, you know, when you look at our customer base, they were already only trading with four, five, six global exchanges, and they're the exchanges that aren't being accused of wash trading and nefarious things, right? So, so we were already like we're, we're getting feeds from a lot of those nefarious exchanges, but we weren't really using that data um, because our clients weren't using those exchanges, right? So. I see that as a problem, right? If you're trying to get an SEC approved ETF and the SEC wants to know how you're going to report price, I can see that as a problem for them from the data side. Like if you're trying to serve institutional investors, institutional investors were not trading on some of those exchanges anyway. The, the real barrier in my view is a couple of things. One is the, just the pure nascency. It's just new, misunderstood still. So people don't really understand what it is that they're buying when they buy a Bitcoin still. The price volatility, right? So even in really skilled institutional investors sometimes confuse volatility for a lack of quality. Volatility is to be expected in any new space where the range of outcomes for what could happen in the future are so wide. Um, vol- you, would, you would be sort of concerned, in my view, if Bitcoin wasn't volatile because it would mean that the opportunity wasn't nearly as big as we expect. I think the lack of infrastructure Broadly, right, custody solutions, um, data solutions, right? So like in any other asset class, people wouldn't invest in it if there wasn't Bloomberg or Thompson Reuters. So like I think people underestimate how important it is. And then headline risk, right? So you don't want to be the first institutional manager or pension fund manager who allocates a big chunk to the space and then the very next day some some there's some massive exchange hack. Because even if that doesn't actually affect your position or your investing strategy, you're still going to get calls from all of your constituents, stakeholders, LPs, whomever you report to the board. Um, and I think until it feels a little bit more de-risked more broadly, you're going to have you know a lot of institutions saying, "Hey, let's just wait and see," which which is very well might be rational if your primary job is you know to keep your job. 
Right. So I really like this quote, and I'd like you to kind of expand on it. And so it's not Bloomberg. It's Bloomberg combined with GitHub. So what does that mean as in reference to what you guys have built there in terms of a platform? And a follow-up question to that, and I'm not asking you to put yourself in the footsteps of Mike Bloomberg or the Thomson Reuters folks or CapIQ or FAXA, but it seems, and I say this because if you've looked at any of those platforms over the last few months, it seems a majority of them have been relatively slow to the uptake on this asset class, and they have not been building kind of systems and functions to support it as rapidly as some other asset classes or other derivatives of asset classes that they normally would have been. So one would love to talk about the Bloomberg combined with GitHub and what the actual platform can do, and then why you think some of the legacy players in finance have been very slow to the uptake on this. Yeah, so in terms of the the GitHub piece, um, these are digitally native assets, right? So they're technology assets in a sense. Unlike a, you know, with a stock, you could actually, even though you might trade in your Robinhood or Schwab account, um, you could also transact on a napkin, right? Because it's not a digitally native asset. They turned, they created a digital representation of that asset to make it easier to trade. Um, but, but Bitcoin is a digitally native asset. And so our view is to build the right data product in the space. It should be digitally native too and allow, you know, an investor to build their own custom models, right, their own heuristics, their own alerts around the data. Uh, and there are just a lot of dimensions of the data that don't exist in other asset classes, like, for example, being able to monitor the actual underlying code quality for a project. That's that's not something that you do. That would be like being able to audit, you know, Google, Amazon, and Apple's code uh, before you made an investment. And while you might have a sense for how good the code is based on using the products, so you don't actually have access to the code base. Um, whereas, whereas you do with an open source project. So, so we thought let's architect a platform that's a little bit more dynamic, right? So with Bloomberg, you typically use the data on screen in the terminal or you may export it to Excel, but you're probably not doing a multi-terabyte type analysis uh, and running like a machine algorithm or an algorithmic trading strategy through your Bloomberg terminal, right? That's not really the way it's designed, whereas we think a lot of investors are going to want to do that in this space. And so we've designed and architected our platform. And that's where the GitHub piece comes. People are literally writing code in Python um, in our platform, and they're able to spin up uh, all kinds of different models from scratch um, if they already know how to write Python. In terms of the, the competitive landscape, you know, I think Bitcoin and other cryptos are really easy to hate. Um, in part because they're hard to understand. And so like when you look at the Buffett and uh, Jamie Dimon quotes, like it's clear ignorance, but it's kind of totally understandable. And some of the some of the resistance to it is actually quite rational because if you have a 10 or $15 billion a year business and you only view the opportunity to serve crypto companies as 10 million, well, it's probably a good idea to just ignore it. The challenge is just every once in a while there's a true sea change, sort of like when uh, you know brick and mortar retailers ignored the internet initially, but until they realized, oh shit, this is a real problem for us, and then they scrambled to to address it. So I think you know there's some institutional inertia and resistance in those big firms. There's some rational uh, ignorance in a sense because 
the, the business is still really small today, but I think that's going to end up being a mistake. And I do expect all of those large players to end up being in this space over the next two, three, four years. Obviously, from our perspective, we prefer that they not be as active today. That's the window of opportunity where we can build to scale. Yep. If, if there were three or four traditional data businesses that were highly active in the space, it would be much harder to compete. We prefer to compete against the small but sophisticated group of kind of crypto native data shops that are rising up that are good at various different things. I mean, Bloomberg today, but we I do mean, expect that we'll compete with Bloomberg in the future. I mean, you know, if you look at the marketplace, you know, since 17 and at 17, there was maybe a handful of funds, maybe 25 to 50, some odd, you know, kind of quote unquote crypto or, you know, digital asset funds. And then at the beginning of this year, there was well over 500 of them. Yes, the market cap capitulated from eight hundred fifty billion down to the uh, the hundreds, hundred twenty, hundred thirty billion dollars. But now we've seen a recovery. We've seen Bitcoin going from thirty one hundred in, in the middle of December to obviously fourteen thousand over the last few weeks, which has been some. Uh, there's been some volatility, whether that's levered or unlevered. We obviously, you know, we there is an opinion that there is a lot of leverage happening right now. But regardless of that, you know, the market. Um, and some of the sentiment, as I, as I alluded to the top of the hour, is that we are – the word Bitcoin has entered into the lexicon of everyone's kind of, uh, kind of vocabulary uh, you know, over the last few weeks, especially here in the United States and now obviously you know, going across the pond and into Europe and other areas too. And so I agree with you. I think that inertia is a very big part of that. And I think as further education and further um, kind of platforms such as yours are obviously evolving, um, you know, that will be, you know, something where those legacy financial players uh, will have to, you know, keep a very close eye on. And so I'm kind of curious, um, you, you know, from my understanding on the platform, you have the ability, you have, you know, the, the data, you have, you know, kind of raw data that the user can then use to their will and kind of create models and analytic tools is there anything that, from talking to your clients, is a very specific narrative? Are they are they kind of overarching, trying to do one type of thing or one you know or a few different types of things with the data to try to understand this market? Is it something that you would normally see in traditional markets, or is there something specific in crypto? Yeah, so that's a, a good question. We we do work with firms across the spectrum, right? So we work with some high frequency more technical type shops. Like if you look at our investor base, we actually have several of the kind of Chicago prop shop uh, firms in our, in our cap table. Um, so you have people that want to want to run like automated algorithmic models using a combination of data. But then we also have some truly fundamental long-term oriented investors who want to track project characteristics and see option, understand how those projects are developing. And then we also work with non-investors too. We, we work with a couple of different protocol teams. Um, and so I would say, you know, at a high level, what people want to do is have the data serve as an input to whatever, you know, model that they're building. So we, we work with some very secretive hedge funds that like we won't be able to actually see what they built because they're building it in their own box where it's fully segmented away from the rest of our infrastructure. And so they are able to build away in private using the cleaned up data that's fed into there. So the value is that they don't have to go out and source terabytes of cleaned up market data, on-chain data, reference data, et cetera. They can also integrate their own data. Um, But from our standpoint though, it's less valuable because we can't 
actually learn from what they're doing. The other side of the coin though, the full other end of the spectrum though, is a lot of our early customers, they may have a Python engineer or a data scientist, but they don't actually want to do all the work themselves. They actually want to collaborate more closely with us because we have seven data scientists now who really intimately understand the database architecture. They understand our DSL. We actually have a domain specific language where you can write, uh, basically it's Python libraries where you can use words that you understand to call data easier to use the platform. And so in that, in that case, we're doing something we call data science as a service where we actually do the work for the client, like build the model, drop it into their dashboard. They can kind of audit that model. They can use the model. They can say, hey, let's make some updates. At some point, they may take back control of that model and write code over it themselves, or they may send it back to us and say, hey, can you make this? So obviously, when, when, when we're doing data science as a service, we can see exactly what people are thinking about and what they're doing. And there are certainly components of this that are new, right? Like examining the UTXO to understand exactly who owned what historically, for example, right? That's something you can't do to the same degree in equities, right, or bond. Right. But then there's other things like just understanding correlations of the assets or understanding the portfolio analytics that are very similar to what you would do with other asset classes. There just isn't a very robust set of frameworks around doing that in this space. And we're obviously trying to, to lead in that area. I, I, that's a great point. You know, from running correlations on equities, you know, and other systems that we talked about before, you have, when you do a stress test, if you have a portfolio and you run a stress test with the work that MSCI Barra and some others out there, the methodologies that they've used is historical data. It's, it's, it's data sets that spread, you know, 10, 20 some odd years, you know, into existence. And then you have to, you can find the correlations, you know, say if you were trying to test a portfolio for the, you know, the great recession that we've had. You know, they, that would have underlying kind of facts or underlying things that have happened, whether that's, you know, the price of oil going down to, you know, 20, below $25 a barrel, whether that's inflation numbers, whether that's CPI, other things that factor into there. There's lots of different multi-factor things that happen when those events happen. And the data, you know, I've said this before time and time again. The most rich data set that we have today, you know, for historical purposes is Bitcoin. You know, we do not have historical data, you know, on a variant of other different crypto assets today. In five years, obviously we will. But, you know, as of today, it's still very, very kind of nascent and, and uh, very early on. So I, I think you would agree with that, right? Yeah, yeah, I would. And, you know, with Bitcoin alone, it trades on several hundred global venues, right? Um, and if you really want to deconstruct the entire uh, Bitcoin blockchain, it's, it's terabytes of, of data, right, to really unpack all of it um, and run the full archive node, understand all the UTXOs, do all the analytics on top of it. There's a lot of work beyond just running a node um, that you would need to do in order to use the information coming off the Bitcoin blockchain to do analytical work. It's the, Bitcoin is not designed... To do analytics, right? It's designed to basically confirm transactions and allow for value transfer. So, in order to use it for the things that we want to use it for, there's a lot of transformations, a lot of cleanup work that need to be done to structure the data in a time series format, in a place where you can line up that data with other data you'd want to use to understand what's happening, right? So, correlating market data on chain, definitely. 
So anyway, it's, it's, it's a lot harder than um, maybe I even would have thought when we started, but of course that's great in the long run because it means there may be real moats. There may be real uh, competitive advantages that can be built up if you were early and you invested. Agreed. Um, and it's not a question, but I also love this, that I believe you're quoted as saying that the vision of digital assets data is to be the primary place where crypto and businesses express their investment thinking. I really love that. Um, obviously, we've touched on the reasons and the rationale how that's possible and, and using the data that you guys are able to extrapolate and let the users kind of use that to their uh, to their liking. So I love that. And uh, it's definitely something that, as I said at the top of the hour, you know, these types of businesses, these types of endeavors were desperately needed two years ago. Um, and I think the reason why myself, you, others out there who spend 24-7, 365 into this world are becoming so much more bullish these days, even though we had a price capitulation in the overall market cap, is that businesses like yours came about and that we didn't have these types of businesses two years ago to support the interest in the space. And now that we have businesses like yours and others out there that are starting to pop up to provide portfolio analytic and things of that nature for asset management, you know, now that we have some of that tooling starting to come into the place, it's going to be something that is quite special to watch. So really enjoyed learning more about that. So moving into more about you, if you've listened to the show and others have, you know, I like to find out more about our guests on a personal level. And there are two areas that I find are very interesting to see what people are reading. Uh, and that could be crypto or non-crypto related. Hopefully there are things outside of quote unquote crypto that you're reading. Um, and then music. Um, we were just having a nice chat before uh, the show that you were running a hundred mile uh, run and you've been very active with running. So I hope, I imagine that you're probably listening to music when you're running. Cause I don't know, I, I run every single day and I have to have music because that's just the type of person I am. So I would love to learn, you know, kind of what you're reading and then what you're listening to. Yeah. So unfortunately for me, because I spend so much time investing my own money and across so many different industries, I do, disproportionately read about companies and about business. So I read the journal pretty much every day. It comes to my doorstep every morning, the print version. So my engineers make fun of me because they think I'm like a guy from the 1950s. Wait, you you read the print version? I read the print version pretty much every day. Wow. Um, and That's old school. <laughs> yeah, it's very old school. And my engineers, as I said, even the engineers that are older than me make fun of me, which I love. Um, <laughs> And then I read a lot of like industry specific stuff. So I read a lot about what's happening with gene therapy, um, for example, on biotech. In terms of books, I've had Ray Dalio's principles on my mm -hmm. nightstand for about a year. And I tend to get through about a chapter every month. Mm -hmm. um, and part of that is because we have three Bridgewater uh, engineers and technologists on our team. And we're probably going to add to that over the next uh, few years. So, so Bridgewater has been a big inspiration for our thinking. When I talk about laying down investment logic as code, a lot of that comes from kind of the Bridgewater methodology of creating like systematic ways of evaluating your investment thinking and then testing them. And then when they work, allocating more, and if not being able to debrief and understand um, doing the postmortem and what happened, what went wrong and what can we change? Right. So, so it's a good book. I just honestly, it's a struggle. I used, I used to read a book all the way through in like an afternoon. And now I find it takes me a year sometimes to read some books for whatever reason. And principles is one of those. I recently started uh, rereading Peter Brandt's 
diary of a professional commodity trader. Not because, not because I'm a trader, but just because I think his rules orientation around entries and exits from positions can be really helpful, even for a long-term value investor that only maybe makes an investment or changes a position like a few times a year. It's still really helpful. So I'm on the second kind of leaf through of that. And I do the same thing as I'm doing with Dalio, where I just read like a chapter or two you know, every week or so. Wow. On the music front, I'm actually a musician. I, I went to Berklee College of Music when I was 15 years old because I thought I wanted to be a musician in my life. I put out an album in uh, 1998 or 99 that where I played most of the instruments on the album. Um, and so I've always loved music. I've As I've gotten older, I like more relaxed, chill music. So like Small Black or Ch- Chad Bali or M83. I love DJ Shadow. I also like jazz so big fan of like don coltrane and miles davis Love it. But I, believe it or not i don't i don't actually listen to music at all when i run i find that to run 100 miles well you actually need to tap into something else if you're relying on an external stimuli of any type uh, it won't get you through 100 miles you have to focus more internally so i spend a lot more time listening to my breathing um, trying to make sure that i'm keeping the right pace and finding kind of a rhythmic pace uh, music creates an artificial rhythm that may not be helpful when you're running hundred miles. So I don't train with music. I don't uh, compete with music. Wow. I listen more. I typically running outdoors, right on trails. So I listen to the sound of the wind blowing through the Aspen tree, for example, or the sound of the birds or any other sounds that come from far away. Like if you're far enough up on a trail, you, you can't hear the road, but sometimes as I'm coming back down a mountain, I'll hear the, the trucks going up and over a pass here in Colorado and I'll kind of tune into that for five minutes and see if I can understand, you know, what's happening on the road five miles away. Wow. That is, uh, I was having a joke with Mike that, you know, I went for a three mile run this morning and he's doing a hundred mile runs and I'm, I feel like I'm not doing enough with my life now these days. So thank you, Mike, for that. I have to uh, step up my game. Um, <laughs> so it was great getting to have Mike on the show. Mike, if there's a, if there's a place, if there are you know, ways that people can get in touch with you, learn more, if it's a family office, if it's a, a crypto fund or an institution, where can people find out more about, uh, you know, what you guys are doing? Yeah, um, we, we probably need to do a better job at that. We, we've actually had so much inbound and, and so much demand for our service that we, we've actually slowed down the, uh, the, the kind of front end of the funnel in terms of adding new clients, but we, we hope to work through kind of our backlog. Uh, but digitalassetsdata.com is the website. Uh, my email is mike at digitalassetsdata.com, and I'm on Twitter at Mike Alfred. Awesome. Definitely reach out to Mike, whether on Twitter or reach out to them uh, via email or their website. Uh, as I said, this is a effort that is definitely needed within the ecosystem. It is a core piece of infrastructure, in my opinion, for capital markets to succeed in this space. And so really enjoy getting to hear from you, Mike, about what's happening over there. Reach out and we'll have you back in a few months to catch up and see how things are progressing. And uh, thanks for coming on. Take care. Thank you, David. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash base layer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. 
If you like what you're listening to on Base Layer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space and the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, marketing commentary, videos, and more.